0: Welcome to the Evaluating Biopharma podcast, where we provide industry decision makers with insider access to veteran bioprocessing experts willing to pay it forward, so you can leverage their knowledge, learn from their successes, and even avoid repeating their mistakes.
1: I'd like to kick it off first with uh, Jonathan Sang, Senior Director of Manufacturing Science and Technology at Kite Pharma. So hello Jonathan how are you hi Ben doing great can you explain for our audience what sorts of challenges may arise um, during the commercialization of an autologous cell therapy platform
0: yeah so I I, I always like uh, I always get a lot of questions from my friends and from you know previous companies and they're always asking you know, what's what's the difference between an autologous platform versus traditional biotech and and really like I try to I try to be succinct about it. And, and, and really, it's like three things. It's um, variability of your incoming patient material, right? Because um, every batch that we receive, the starting material is from the patient. And those patients have innate sort of variability in their material. But they also have gone undergone like different previous lines of treatment, potentially. And then also, uh, you know, even the development work we do is with like healthy donor cells, right? So that, you know, the first part is just we have an awful lot of variability. Um, and the second one is really from a volume perspective uh, in comparison to like a monoclonal for example where you may run you know two batches a month or something like that in a small facility we're running thousands of patients who each have individual batches through our our facilities every year and then um, the last one is around speed so because we can't carry inventory um, we you know uh, we actually just recently published at ash, we have an average vein-to-vein time of 0.7 days, meaning from our patient through our manufacturing process, released, you seed everything back to the patient, 0.7 days, uh, which is pretty, yeah. it's So it's like breakneck speed, right? So th- th- those three are probably the, the biggest differences between sort of an autologous, autologous commercial platform
1: versus traditional. The speed of science, as it were. Absolutely. So as far as the, for the audience, is there, um, I guess, what, what would you say as far as explaining what sorts of challenges may arise from different donor cell behavior that you've seen?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I so I, I think I kind of mentioned before, but you know, individual patient genetics and then the yeah. phenotypes of their cells, uh, lead to different performance and, um, the, the challenging part is when you're doing all your process characterization, you're getting it from healthy, you're getting cells from healthy patients.
1: Yep.
0: And if you talk about, you know, just, you know, like the cell health in itself, you know, it's always the best growth profile. It's always the best viabilities when you're talking about these cells when they're growing um, because they're coming from healthy donors. But now you're getting patient material from people who have undergone uh, two previous lines of treatment. so Maybe chemo, uh, chemo radiation, maybe stem cell transplants as well, and then you can imagine how their cells may not be as healthy, and mm-hmm. um, growth profiles, viabilities, uh, how you know uh, how they g- are genetically modified. All these different things they all sort of differ, and so what that really leads to is it- it's hard to develop a process that can handle that type of viability or variability.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of where we were in the early days, let's say, in in the biotechnology revolution, where cell culture was very much a, you know, almost a black box. You know, there are cells growing. We mustn't disturb them. Uh, they do what they do. And, you know, as as the years went on and and characterization data became more and more complete, we start to understand a lot more. Um, maybe I would ask you to that point so you've got the individual patient genetics you've got you know different performances in how the cells will will and are functioning um, do you see that those changes are things that we have enough data about that that we can kind of assess where we'll be going in the future and that we can basically characterize well enough for let's say different disease or disorder states, um, do we have have a data set that's deep enough and rich enough to be able to allow us to predict better how best to deal with different cell types?
0: Yeah, I I mean, that's a a wonderful question. And I I think um, it's two part. I I think from a development perspective, um, the development scientists really need to have this variability in mind when they're going about developing your processes. Hmm. So uh, we, we always talk about, you know, DOEs and, and and characterizing at the edge of failure and all these nice things to have um, in traditional biotherapeutics, but it's even more important when we're talking about uh, autologous cell therapies to really manage that. And if uh, if you're developing your entire process only at center point of all your process ranges, it's pretty much setting things up for failure. So, so that's one thing to keep in mind. And then when you're talking about sort of data, I think that's where there's tremendous opportunity. Um, It's never been so important to sort of have process monitoring, process analytics, uh, good CPV programs, all these elements to sort of extract data um, from your active monitoring, from your active processes, the opportunities to potentially link that data with your clinics that are collecting uh, patient materials. Uh, there's there's tremendous opportunity there to really understand how patient health health is now linked with uh, manufacturing success rates and and then on, on top of that um you talk about data i think there's also a lot of opportunity for improved process analytical technologies so if we talk about traditional pats in a bioreactor like you know Glucose, lactate, uh, you know, c- cell density, dissolved oxygen—all all, all these sort of things. I, I think uh, the next generation of more, even more advanced process analytical technologies, so we can understand maybe patient phenotypes while the cells are growing, uh, will really allow us to really control a lot of these things in the future. I think there's a lot of wonderful science to be had in the future.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. What CQA do you look at during process development? Ah yeah.
0: well, okay. So I mean it's I mean that is such a huge question, right? So it, it really depends on what your quality target product profile is, right? For yeah, yeah. for whatever patient uh indication that you have. And then so so it's it's really hard to tell uh you which CQA to look at, but of course you have all your typical ones, right? Yeah, I mean you have how many cells you need to dose, like, I'm, I'm just being very general, right? Like, sure. yeah, how, how, like, you know, how many cells you have, you know, how healthy they are, right? Some sort of viability measurement, um, you know, uh, uh, how well um, your genetic payload is incorporated, however, which way that you do it. So it, it, it's like, uh, there's, yeah, that that that's a very, very deep discussion. Probably that's a little bit more than what we'll be able to go into here.
1: Or maybe the subpart to that question, how do you compare critical quality attributes between health or between or across healthy and diseased patients?
0: Um, so, it's, it's, so it's more, yeah. So your, your CQAs don't change, right? Like, so if, for example, you're using healthy donor material to do your process characterization. You're still looking at the same critical quality attributes of your product at the end. Yep. It's it's really then how do you go about making sure that you challenge your process and your process ranges uh, so that, you know, you may have a patient that isn't able to, well, let's just use an example of like, you have a patient, you're trying to harvest cells from them and they can't provide enough cells. Well, then maybe you should start your process development with a lower amount of cells to make sure that they can still re- reach the endpoint number of cells that you. So it, it's that sort of behavior of making sure to challenge variability of incoming materials that then lead to sort of final outcome in the CQA.
1: Yep. And maybe on that point of material variability, um, do you feel that we're in an era now where we have enough data to, to be able to predict not only the cell variability, but the raw material va- variability, or are we at the end of the bullwhip? Um,
0: Yeah, uh, also a good question. Right. So uh, especially with our, you know, with autologous processes in general and cell therapy in general, you're using pretty advanced raw materials as well. So um, I can think of some past cases at previous uh, previous roles I've had where uh, media components had a very, very incredible, large, incredibly large impact on your cell culture performance. And so now you're using even more advanced um, antibody uh, reagents as as part of of processes. So there is quite a bit of variability. Um, What I would say is that this all goes back once once again into uh, process development, that you really make sure that you have good relationships with your suppliers of these reagents and really characterize those reagents well, so that we can actually uh, minimize variability along the way. Otherwise, all that variability adds up into variability at the end of one.
1: Right. And the more that that spins out of control, the worse the overall outputs are all Absolutely. the time. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations uh, for how to establish and execute proper chain of custody for materials or for the cells themselves?
0: Yeah, so you know, this goes back, you know, originally when we we're talking about what's what's important, right, for a commercial autologous platform. It's yeah. really also the volume that a facility needs to deal with, with dealing with hundreds of patients a week, maybe thousands, you know, thousand thousands plus a year. Um, And really, how do you make sure that you're not mixing up between patients, mixing up the raw materials that are going into them, or even mixing up batches? So really, when you're talking about chain of custody, chain of identity, it's really making sure that you have the appropriate IT systems in place, and also operational controls that are backed up for that, so that you don't get mix-ups, right? And that's absolutely critical, right? We cannot afford to... Give one patient another patient's cells, right? It's just that would be disastrous, and that really l- relies on your IT systems, your operational controls, and your quality systems in every place.
1: Yeah, and for the audience, do you have any advice for for building um, or somehow implementing these systems best to help support scale up?
0: Yeah. So, what what I would rec- recommend is. Proactively thinking through these things before you're actually using them um, and, and really doing good value stream maps of your entire business process as, as, as you're going through them. And if, if you're imagining, um, once again, let's go back to traditional biotech. Maybe I make two batches, three batches in the bioreactor a month. Um, imagine now hundreds of batches or lots per week. Uh, what does that mean for? product release or batch record review or deviation investigation. It means now you're taking all that and multiplying it maybe by hundreds, maybe in the worst case, thousands. And what does that workload look like? Um, what does that look like for the staff that you have to have? What type of training that needs? So all these things sort of have to be thought out very well up front. Otherwise, it just leads to a little bit of uh, trying to build a plane while you're flying.
1: Mm. Yep. And for those who haven't done it, um, Value Stream Mapping, a tool that comes to us from Lean and Toyota Production System, do you have any um, favorite ways or, you know, a couple um, thematic key ideas for how best to go about conducting a good Value Stream Map for this purpose?
0: Uh, I mean, I, I, well with, with a good value stream map it's always nice to have someone with a, a lean background right to facilitate it and then making sure that when you do uh perform the value stream map all your appropriate stakeholders are involved and uh, often we you know often traditionally sometimes you do it in a silo sometimes you do it with one organization like manufacturing but really uh looking at all the different touch points if you, if you look at something like let's just use an example of deviations, right? Hmm. A deviation occurs on the manufacturing floor and a manufacturing operator may report that deviation, but immediately now there's some sort of triage between them and a quality organization. At that point, they define the deviation and then that goes to someone in manufacturing or manufacturing sciences now for an investigation. Now that investigation is happening with a bunch of quality people as well. And right. uh, you know, help us if it, if it's a raw material based thing because now you're talking to supplier quality management or QC or some other group. And so if you look at that that sort of branching uh, uh, topic of, of how who is involved in the deviation, it now looks like this massive web. And so if you're performing a value stream map of that. It's making sure to actually understand what that potentially looks like, because once you're in operations, you're now taking that and multiplying it by an order of magnitude.
1: Yeah, for sure. On the topic of um, materials, what can the providers do on the upstream side to provide you with less variability, more data about the starting material, etc.? Is there a way to help solve that issue, circumvent it?
0: Right. Um, I, what, I, what I would say is um, it's, it's maybe characterization of the raw material, uh, you know, as, as best as possible. Um, and also uh, what, what I would love is that, like if the raw materials, the, the raw material providers worked with the process development scientists to really understand what potentially uh, are the impacts that maybe aren't characterized. So so you've always, you know, an example would be you have a raw material and it meets all specifications, but then when it gets into um, operations, it performs a little bit different. It it doesn't, it's not quite as active or it's too active. um, And there's maybe something uncharacterized in specification that's actually leading to uh, some difference in performance of that raw material. And, and, And I think that's really hard to do without good coordination between the company and the raw
1: material Hmm. Okay. Another one um, that was similar to that. Do you see an opportunity for innovation to optimize incoming starting materials? For example, having a cleaner, more purified cell population.
0: Um, so I, I, I would actually say that's more um, the, the, the cell therapy manufacturer's role that their uh, manufacturing process right. should probably be able to separate uh or purify uh if needed the, the appropriate cells for the process I, I I'm I where you could do that I think with a with autologous platforms just because we are <coughs> new should should this be happening at the the treatment center um you know where where they're pre- performing um, apheresis or potentially at the manufacturer. I, I think that's pretty, I think that could be pretty different depending on the company and the process that they're Mm Hmm.
1: All right. Um, And I think, you know, winding this down, uh, there's a lot of different directions I could go with this, you know, as far as what some of the best enablers could be for preparing for commercial manufacturing, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to steer um, those things that you know much better than I do. So, wh- what are some of your your parting thoughts um, on anything we may not have covered as far as preparing for commercial manufacturing of cell therapy?
0: Uh, I, I think um, what, what what I would maybe I think that maybe one of the biggest surprises for me is how important um data is to an autologous uh, manufacturing process mm. um you, you know in traditional msat for traditional biotherapeutics uh your process monitoring groups were always important right you want to know how the bioreactor is running that day however um it's even more important here because of the scale that we're running at so if you have a problem with the raw material if you have a problem with a piece of equipment you want to know immediately before hundreds of patients have run through your facility within a short amount of time. Hmm. So so I I think data monitoring and process monitoring is just incredibly, incredibly important. And for them to be successful, data integration has to be thought about very, very early um, in the process. And I think a a lot of companies, when they're new to commercial manufacturing, Everything's always on paper. Even if it is on paper, how do you collect that data in a very, very fast way to where you can utilize it to monitor your process? Or if a company is able to get the digital systems in place to really be able to uh, utilize that to sort of control your process and uh, avoid potential manufacturing disasters.
1: Right. Okay. You know, in wrapping this up, there's um, a, a similar sort of theme that came into the comments. And what I'd like to do is just read you this uh, idea and maybe as your your closing thoughts, give your feedback as to what you think about it. Um, it says, in my view, far too little PAT and upstream work is being done due to lack of tools. The rush is to get first and human with imperfect processes, but this must change. What do you think about that
0: yeah yeah i I would i would agree with that uh i would love i i would love improved pat tools i think that will really sort of once again i think i mentioned earlier that's an opportunity for us Mm -hmm. to really enable sort of next generation of autologous platforms i think that would be
1: tremendous excellent jonathan it's been a pleasure um and for everybody who's viewing this at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, so in about 50 minutes, we will have the deeper dive networking discussion. So any questions that you have in reserve for Jonathan, please hold them for then, and you'll have a chance to speak with him at that point. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Thank you, ben.
0: We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please visit www.evaluatingbiopharma.com to access the on-demand video and to download the summary article. You can also access the Evaluating Biopharma content archive, sign up for our newsletter and register to attend an upcoming Evaluating Biopharma virtual networking event. Feedback or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you.